and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched Mank, the new Netflix movie from director David Fincher, the filmmaker behind Fight Club, Zodiac and The Social Network. It's a black and white 1930s drama about Herman J. Mankiewicz, the co-writer of Citizen Kane. And despite widespread critical praise, we really did not like this movie. (laughs) Morgan knows a lot about the real Mankiewicz, so we're going to dig into where this film went wrong. Uh, welcome, and this is very much an episode where you do not need to have watched the film to appreciate the episode, and in fact, we'd recommend not watching the film. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I initially gave this a rather negatively toned, but also technically 3.5 star review, and as soon as that was published, I already started getting buyer's remorse, being like, wasn't actually that good, it was definitely not as good as that said. Um, I think I was slightly bamboozled by the buzz, even though I clearly liked it a lot less than most critics. But once Morgan started giving me more information on what this film got wrong, factually speaking, oh boy, a lot of concerning historical and indeed ethical choices were made in this film. But yeah, should we go into the background a bit of uh, what Mank is and how it took millions of years to get made? Yes, there's a lot of background to go into there's the background of Fincher and the how he got involved with the film, and then also the Herman Mankiewicz background, and I think we should do the Fincher background first. Cool. So why don't you lead us off with that? I have so many notes on Herman Mankiewicz because I read the out-of-print biography of him, which I bought three months ago in anticipation of this movie, so I'm going to give you like a whole history lesson <laughs> on Herman Mankiewicz, but let's start with Fincher and um, how he came to sort of be involved with this movie. David Fincher, the director, his father, Jack Fincher, was a journalist, but after he retired, he decided to write or try writing screenplays. And David's suggestion was that he would write a biopic of Mankiewicz. Before this point, Jack Fincher had not really heard of him, but it's a really interesting topic, partly because obviously Herman Mankiewicz is attached to the most famous movie ever made, and partly because uh, there was this very famous, long, like almost novel length essay that was published in the New Yorker back in the 70s by this very acclaimed film critic named Pauline Kael, who wrote basically a takedown of the idea that Orson Welles like was the mastermind behind Citizen Kane. And it was kind of saying, actually, Mankiewicz deserved much more credit and was cheated out of his credit by the studio system. It's a very complicated controversy. And the essay itself has like partly been debunked. But the message behind Jack Fincher's initial draft for this movie was basically like, let's bring Mankiewicz back into the public eye and kind of give him his due. However, this movie like wasn't made in Jack Fincher's lifetime. Like this movie was drafted in the 80s and 90s when David Fincher was just starting out as a filmmaker and wasn't ready to take on like this project for his father. His father, Jack, then died in 2003 And it took 17 years for this movie to get made because studios either kept rejecting the script that David Fincher wanted to make or David Fincher had other projects to work on because obviously he's been making these really successful high profile movies for years. And finally, this film got made because Netflix, once it has like a really successful director on the hook, it will give them carte blanche to make whatever they want. And those passion projects are sometimes really fascinating and cool, like Roma, and sometimes just something that shouldn't have been made. Like, there's a reason why this was rejected by multiple studios, as we will go into. It's not very interesting, and it's not a very well-executed script. But that's kind of the backstory behind this. We'll go into the Netflix stuff a bit more. It's basically kind of a passion project for David Fincher that also is kind of tying into his very close, like, creative and personal relationship with his father, and he's making this film in honour of his father, and the full screenwriting credit goes to Jack Fincher, so the rewrites after his death cannot have been very extensive. I would love to know what the rewrites looked like, because it is public knowledge yeah, that it was the screenwriter... Er, yeah, yeah, Eric Roth, who wrote like Forrest Gump and Munich and a bunch of other stuff, he's a legendary screenwriter, and David Fincher both did work on the screenplay and like Eric Roth has talked about this yeah. like normally yeah, I mean, script done, polishes are not about it. public yeah. knowledge yeah and Eric Roth is a producer on the movie and 
I mean, clearly this is Jack Fincher's screenplay, but I would be really curious to know how much extra work went into it because he's not a screenwriter. Like, that's one of the problems with this film. And obviously there are many talented people whose stuff never gets published or produced or whatever because it's really hard to, you know, break through. But my, like, my main reaction to this movie early on, aside from the fact that I couldn't, make out what was happening in the frame, which we'll also talk about, um, <laughs> was that the, the writing is really bad. And obviously this guy was a writer. He was a journalist. I don't know any details about his career, but it's a totally different skill to write a screenplay than to write journalism. And like this, the way the scenes are structured in this movie are like not how scenes work. Like th- things just kind of happen. And then it kind of just bleeds into the next scene and there's no dramatic tension at all. And it's just not good. And if this had not been written by David Fincher's father, this wouldn't this would not exist. Like there's just no way. And obviously there's a danger of like psychoanalyzing too much, but in all of the interviews about this movie, he just talks about his dad so much. I mean, this clearly this is why this movie exists. And the fact that Fincher, Jack Fincher gets the sole credit, I would suspect is more about that than about yeah you know the fact that he's the the only real writer like i suspect eric roth did a, actually a fair amount of work on the screenplay and like david fincher didn't want his name on there because of the emotional reasons i'm totally speculating but that would just be my suspicion i'm like eric roth doesn't fucking need his name on another movie like it doesn't, it doesn't matter but it's just it's just not good writing and it's a movie about screenwriting and so so I was watching it and I was just like, oh no, like this is not good. And I just found it boring. Like I just found it completely boring. And I think the writing is the main problem with that, right? Like there are lots of other issues with it, which we will discuss. But on a base level, like I don't like the social network either, which we've talked about in another episode, but like that movie is entertaining, right? Like, well, it's an Aaron Sorkin script. Like, basically, David Fincher isn't a writer. Like, he is one of the big-name directors who doesn't write his own movies. Like, he always works with a screenwriter. And so here, people are really praising all of the kind of technical elements and the acting. But, like, as Morgan said, like, structurally, it doesn't really work. Emotionally, it didn't really engage me at all. And the thing here, right, is, like, the whole point is that Mankiewicz was this incredible wit. Like, he was this guy who... He had a lot of troubles in his life. Um, the, the movie really doesn't go into his backstory at all, which I think was a mistake. Um, a lot of the time I actually prefer biogra- biopic dramas that just focus on one area. But here it was like, he had so many interesting things happening in other elements of his life that this was actually one of the le- less interesting things, even though it's attached to this big story in the form of Citizen Kane. But um, there's like so many quips in the script because he was this sort of Oscar Wilde figure. But like the quips don't work because the, none of the dialogue flows well right and partly it's like aping this kind of 1930s 40s screwball dialogue but it doesn't work because it's not fun right like when you watch one of these films from the 30s and 40s first of all those actors they're used to speaking that way it's just like the way that those films were so it's natural to them and also just the dialogue is better so in this there's a lot of scenes where people are sort of describing themselves or each other like the first half hour of this movie was literally i was like literally i spent 25 minutes to half an hour watching dozens of men introduce themselves which is like one of my least favorite things about biopics when it's just a bunch of men introducing themselves and explaining who they are but like in a witty way and then like explaining their thematic relevance to the story which is not good (laughs) and there's loads of scenes where someone will like deliver a pithy epithet and then like walk out of a door (laughs) so Well, most of the dialogue in this movie, not all, but most, is expository. Like, there is so much explaining of things. And I've heard, like, the reaction to this film definitely has been mixed. Like, I have seen some other people who really, really did not like it. And then some people who are kind of in the middle and then some people who loved it. But I've seen a lot of people who are kind of being like, it's like a screwball. And my reaction to that is like, have you seen those old screwballs and I know some of these people have like, but Veronica it's Mars really... is more like an actual screwball like the dialogue in Veronica, Veronica Mars or Gilmore Girls functions more like a screwball than this or any of Aaron Sorkin's stuff or anything by Aaron Sorkin <laughs> right this is not it's not 
fast. Most of it I did not I never I didn't laugh at anything in this movie. I didn't find it particularly funny. But a lot and a lot but a lot of that is that like they're just explaining things to each other as opposed to having like repartee. And having read that biography of him, like this was a really, really funny person. There's a great quote from Ben Hecht, who was a legendary screenwriter and playwright at the time. He wrote the front page, which uh, His Girl Friday was based on or co-wrote it. I can't remember. And in the book, he says, most of Mankey's utterances, including his deepest philosophic ones, stirred laughter. Even his enemies laughed. He could puncture egos, draw blood from pretenses, and his victims, with souls abashed, still sat and laughed. The swiftness of his thoughts was by itself a sort of comedy. Never have I known a man with so quick an eye and ear and tongue for the strut of fools. And, like, that guy is not in this movie. <laughs> that sounds like, amazing. Like, yeah, that is right. not what I got from Gary Oldman. But it also, it's not even what the film is, like, intending to do. No. Like, the film isn't even trying and failing. It's just, like, the, yeah, it's just kind of downbeat. Yes. And I think part of the problem with the script also is that it does this thing where the framing device is Mankiewicz in the desert in 1940 writing Citizen Kane. And then it goes back, not just to 1934, but also to like 1930 and 1931. And it like scrambles itself around in a way that I found quite confusing, even knowing all this history. But I remember thinking like, if you didn't know about all this stuff already, you would just be like, what the fuck? is going on. But the movie is also technically impenetrable, I think. I mean, I feel like we should just talk about this now before we even get into the Mankiewicz stuff, because it's the big thing. Most of the reactions of this film that I've seen, even the people who are skeptical about it, are like, well, but obviously it's a technical masterpiece. And like... Well, it's like, I'm very mixed, right? Because it's like, there's just so many like clashing elements, right? Because like the production design and the costumes are both very good. But that also is like not a very remarkable achievement because there's a lot of films set in this period which do that, right? Like it's an achievable goal for a filmmaker with a budget and access to talented costume production designers. But in terms of the cinematography and kind of the black and white stuff, it's just baffling because when the film's first trailer came out, the first thing Morgan pointed out was that it's the wrong aspect ratio. And as soon as she pointed this out, I was like, I couldn't notice anything else because it's like, you've gone to the trouble of filming this movie in black and white. However, he filmed it digitally. So it's not on film and it's in the wrong aspect ratio, but he's added stuff like black splotches and like editing ticks to make it look like it's been edited on film to have those flaws, which is just this weird sort of inauthentic thing, which... In, even in theory, it would only work if it was quite a tongue-in-cheek enterprise, so it just feels weird and false. I actually quite liked a lot of the kind of acting technique stuff. I appreciated like the stuff that some of the main actors were doing in terms of behaving in this sort of pre-method performance style. But, I mean, Morgan, the lighting. What was up with the lighting? So, I have quite bad vision. I mean, I wear glasses, it's fine. But it's gotten worse in the pandemic because all I do is sit inside and like read things. <laughs> I need new glasses. Normally when I'm watching a movie on my TV, it's like slightly a little bit blurry, but I wouldn't really notice it. This movie was so dark that I literally was like, I, I obviously I could see it. It's not, I mean, my grandmother's legally blind. There is a difference. So I'm aware of that, but they were all completely out of focus. And I was just like, I can't see the fucking movie. <laughs> like, you see, I'm very confused by the number of critics who are talking about how great the lighting is in this because for the many listeners who have not seen this film, if you just kind of Google images from the movie, look at some of the pictures on Google Image that are outdoors. All of the pictures that are outdoors, it will look really dark and overcast. Like it's an extremely murky film. And obviously the concept of lighting is like, not is it light enough? <laughs> but the fact that like you couldn't, <laughs> like the fact that it actively seemed murky in scenes that were meant to be like their sunbathing that is an issue and it, it it falls much more into the sort of dark gray end of the color palette rather than be, there being contrast and like the lighting on the faces is often there's not enough contrast which i think might partly be a makeup issue but like you need a lot of shadowing on and especially when you're comparing it to citizen kane <laughs> that's a problem 
Yes. So Citizen Kane, the cinematography was done by this guy, Greg Toland, who's like a legend. It has some of the best cinematography of any movie ever because it's one of the best movies ever. But you have these incredibly rich blacks and like the light is so clear and doing all this amazing stuff. And in this, most of it is inside. Like there are a few scenes outside and those don't look great either. But most of it's inside dark rooms and it is really hard to see what's going on and see anything on anybody's face. And um, there's just not very much contrast, as you say, it's very gray. And I watched last night, to compare the cinematography specifically, I rewatched The Artist, which I had not seen since it came out in 2011, and is now like widely reviled, which I think, I like, I just rewatched it. It's totally charming. I don't understand. Yeah, why I mean, I, have, I don't have like strong memories of that ever. movie, but I remember thinking it was very pleasurable. <laughs> I think it's a total, I mean, it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's a Weinstein issue that people hate it that much. Um, But I was specifically curious about the cinematography because I remember it looking really good. And it's the only other movie I can think of that's come out at all recently. I mean, it's now like 10 years ago that is doing a pastiche of old Hollywood in this way. They shot on film, they shot on color film, and then they changed it to black and white when they were editing. And it doesn't look exactly right. It's also a little bit too, like the grayscale is a little bit to emphasize as opposed to the blacks, but it looks overall really great. And the light is excellent. And it's shot in Academy ratio, so not widescreen. And the actual camera movements are like playing with the way that films were shot in the 20s and 30s. And it's so much fun to watch just on a visual level, I think, because it's interacting with those old films in a way that's very deliberate and fun. And I was reading a profile of Fincher in the New York Times from a couple weeks ago by Jonah Weiner that to me felt like the skeleton key to this movie. I would really recommend it to people if you're interested in him or this film. And they talk a lot about his technical process and his approach to directing. And apparently he pioneered this technique doing, I think, The Social Network, where he basically shoots 20% more than the frame requires. And then he edits it down after the fact and like balances it so perfectly that there's like no camera jittering at all because he's like so obsessive. There can't be any. Yeah. One of the, one of the most famous things about Fincher is that he like will routinely do like 50 to a hundred takes of a single scene, which drives some actors just to distraction. So (laughs) yes, there's a great quote in this article that I have here about Steven Soderbergh being in the editing room with him uh, on the film Panic Room, which was pre-digital. But Soderbergh says, he's describing the scene, he says, David has a laser pointer out and he was circling this one section of a wall in the upper part of the frame saying, that's a quarter of a stop too bright. I had to leave the room. I had to go outside and take some deep breaths because I thought, (laughs) oh my God, to see like that? all the time, everywhere, I wouldn't be able to do it. And Soderbergh is a very technically minded director. I mean, he's an innovator in digital, you know, photography. And even he is like, Jesus Christ. But also Steven Soderbergh is like famous for making a movie in 10 minutes. So, you know. (laughs) Yes, yes. So Fincher shoots sort of too much of the frame and then he balances it out. And they're also talking about how basically since... I think Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which he did after The Social Network, although maybe he started with The Social Network. Whenever he's moving the camera now, it basically moves with the actors as they are moving. So it like pans with them, but he doesn't really do extra movements. So if you think about the way the camera moves in Gone Girl, and like as soon as they said this, I was like, oh yeah, that's totally right. The camera will move along with Ben Affleck or Rosamund Pike, but it's not like doing other crazy stuff. It's very, very smooth. There's no handheld shots, lots of just like, you know, still, still camera shots. And I think, I mean, I love Gone Girl. We both love Gone Girl. I don't think we've ever done an episode on it, but um, I'm sure we've discussed it in some capacity before. But I think if there's any problem with that movie, it's that the direction is almost like too controlled, which kind of works for that film because the movie is so cold. Like Gone Girl is a very cold story, but I think he's just gotten to a point where, like, it's too much the computer kind of controlling the image. And in Mank, he's using the same techniques, but that's not how movies were shot 
1941 or 1934, like that, none of what I just described. Well, like, you'd, fi- has, like, you'd like, physically like, run out of like film. You'd be like, well, we've got yes. like, enough film to do three takes and then we're fucking out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they shot movies in like a month less. So you think about how many movies Cary Grant was making like every year. I mean, they just went and went and went and went. And these directors, like the great directors of that era, like George Cukor and Preston Sturgis and Howard Hawks, like, they made so many movies because it was just a faster process. And I think what works about the artist that does not work about Mank, and, like, Michel Hazanavicius, who is the director of the artist, is a less accomplished director than David Fincher, obviously. But, like, he'll just kind of do whatever the movie requires for that movie, right? Like, he did James Bond pastiches with Jean Dujardin also. He just made an animated movie. Like, he'll just change it up. Whereas Fincher, I think, is like, I'm doing this. I'm, it's my style. It's the only thing that I can do. And it does not work for this setting. But then he grafts onto it the, like, weird cigarette burn things in the corner, the fact that it's in black and white, the fact that it's all recorded in mono sound, which I wasn't really consciously thinking about it, but... I think in retrospect, I think it diminished my experience of the movie because I was straining a little bit to hear it. And um, if you had any kind of hearing loss, which my mother has pretty severe hearing loss, you would just be like, well, I got no fucking idea what any of these people are saying. And I can't really remember any of the dialogue. And I think part of that is that I was just like, what? (laughs) And so why do any of that if you're still going to be shooting on digital? And it looks digital. It does not approximate film at all. Like, I don't understand. It was I do a, not it, understand. Yeah, it was like a weird mix. Also, just as a note on the sound thing, like, I just remembered one element of this that might explain it, which is that they filmed a lot of it outdoors. And it was filmed in LA. And there's this interview we'll link to in the show notes, which is kind of Fincher going into a lot of the technical elements. It's in Vulture. But he kind of says, we were planning on, like, basically looping it. We were planning on recording a lot more audio after the fact and kind of putting it in there. But then they had to, they were like, oh, we don't need to do this. And I'm like, well, maybe you didn't need to do it. Or maybe, as he describes, it was very difficult to record an entire film's worth of audio because everyone had to come into the studio during the middle of the pandemic. So they had to like spray down the studio every half hour. And Amanda Seyfried did her audio like from her house in upstate New York. So like, it sounds like maybe there might have been technical issues that prevented them from doing as much audio re-recording as they planned. I mean, they also say in the New York Times piece that... They re-recorded the final mix in a theater to give it even more of an old theater sound feel. So I think that was, I think this was his vision for how it was going to sound. I don't really, like the the whole mono sound thing to me, I mean, I can imagine in another film being like, oh, that's interesting. But like, I just didn't notice it like at all. And I don't really understand the point. Like just because like there were so many different clashing elements of like modern and historical in ways that didn't really make sense. Like the fact that like it basically, in terms of the camera work, like Morgan said, it's more or less normal Fincher. Like he's not using as much pastiche stuff there as he does elsewhere. But in terms of the kind of physical performances and the way the characters were emoting, most of the main actors were very much kind of leaning into the idea of it being 1940s acting. It just, it's weird. It was strange. (laughs) Well, and you can totally make a film about this time period and not have it be a pastiche, right? Like, no. Like, that's fine. No. It's totally fine. But he, like, does it halfway. Yeah. But he clearly just can't quite get past himself to totally commit to it. And then you have this weird thing where it's just not totally there. I just thought it looked visually, just really looked awful. There are always going to be a couple movies a year where, like, everyone else is like, this is great. And you just think, what did I watch? Like, I don't understand this reaction. But specifically for this, people being like, God, the cinematography is amazing. I was like, what is happening? Before, (laughs) so, like, I got my screener really late. So, like, there were loads of film people were kind of talking about this online weeks and weeks before the film came out. When there was, like, a critical consensus that comes out months in advance, like last year there was with Joker to a much greater extent. Um, it always means there's going to be like backlash and like people arguing and stuff once the film is actually available to the public. And I basically got to see this movie like two days before release date, which is functionally the same. And one of my one one of my things I was curious about going in was whether, kind of somewhat like Joker actually, whether a lot of this was kind of motivated by film industry nostalgia because there is a long history 
of movies about either Hollywood specifically or just like the process of making film, which are, some of them are like really amazing, like Singing in the Rain, obviously iconic, amazing, brilliant film. But like there's loads of those movies which get like a lot of critical acclaim and a lot of awards attention because they're playing to an audience of people who are like obsessed with the film industry and love this and like have a lot of emotional attachment to movies. And that's not bad, but sometimes like nostalgia can colour your reaction to something. So it's it's literally the same as when people are like, oh, Guardians of the Galaxy is hilarious because it's full of references to like 80s music. <laughs> it's just, this is the more highbrow version where it's like, oh, we've got all these cameos from some random person who worked in MGM in 1934. And I'm like, yeah, but it's not like a good drama. <laughs> and this definitely felt like that. Like I kind of felt like my suspicions had been confirmed once I'd seen it because superficially it's playing into a lot of these things that make you think of the experience of watching these really incredible classic black and white movies. But functionally, it's not doing that in a way that is charming and entertaining like the artist. There's this other blog post which I found very interesting. It's got a slightly tongue-in-cheek headline, but I was like, yeah, this absolutely tracks. The he- <laughs> It's in this website called Inside Hook, and the title is, Is David Fincher's Mank a Netflix PSYOP? An Investigation. <laughs> And basically, this is going into something which I'm sure I've discussed in several episodes of this show when discussing Netflix stuff, which is that they make a lot of algorithm-based creative decisions. So you will often see the same ideas appearing in multiple Netflix products around the same time. So one that I noticed quite early on working as a TV critic was that there were like multiple TV shows being released at once, which were sci-fi oriented and were about like a young vulnerable yet tough white girl being kidnapped and turning out to have psychic powers. So the most the most famous one of those is Stranger Things, but there were like five different Netflix shows that were all around that, some of which were originals and some of which were acquired by Netflix from overseas. But like there's these certain tropes which you see reappearing and it's not just sort of natural pat- pattern recognition. They've like figured out that certain things work and they will then repeat this. And this article I was reading kind of mentions a few of these like talking about how like there was some cruise ship movie which was a big hit on Netflix and then they purchased another cruise ship movie. But what they're saying with Mank is that Mank, even though obviously this is David Fincher's passion project, Mank is directly echoing another movie that was also released this year on Netflix, which is a black and white pastiche biopic of another under-recognized early Hollywood filmmaker, which was the director of Casablanca. And it's called Curtis, because the guy's name was Curtis. It's the same fucking movie. And when you watch the trailer, you're like, it's the same fucking music, because Mank has music by the iconic Atticus Ross, and Trent Reznor, who do music for all of Fincher's recent movies. They are amazing, iconic, Nine Inch Nails, love them. But their music in this was very subpar to me because they are once again doing pastiche music, but it's like completely bog standard. It's the kind of thing I can imagine seeing in like the Agent Peggy Carter Marvel show, you know? And so you have like some jazz stuff, you've got some incidental 1930s movie music in there, and you've also got typewriter noises, which were just on and on throughout the film, which felt too obvious to me. And also an incredibly obvious pastiche of that sing, sing, sing big band track, which is in like every jazz movie ever. And they also have this in the trailer for like the Curtis movie. And I was just like, Jesus Christ, it's completely true. It is a Netflix (laughs) psyop. Oh my god. I didn't know that movie existed. No, no one um, did because it was it, it didn't it, it was one of the many movies that Netflix releases without promoting cuz like it's not by a famous person. <laughs> but it's the same movie. Oh, Jesus Christ. Uh yeah, I oh, it's grim. So, let's use that as a bad segue to <laughs> to talk about Herbert Mankiewicz. Yes. Let's learn who some this movie is nominally about, but not really because it's so bad. It's so bad, Gabia. I don't understand. I mean, so we mentioned the Polly and Kale essay Raising Cain, which is where she advances this argument that he's like the primary author of Citizen Kane, which the movie adopts. Like the movie completely adopts this point of view. Apparently the first draft of the screenplay was really just like Orson Welles is a monster. Yeah, it was much more aggressive. Fast. Yeah, which is pretty fascinating because apparently Citizen Kane was Jack Fincher's favorite movie and like he showed it to David Fincher as a child being like, this is the masterpiece of all masterpieces. And then he wrote the script that was like, Orson Welles sucks, which I mean, interesting. But uh, the scholarship does not support this at all. It's kind of remarkable that the New Yorker allowed this to run given they have all these, you know, famous fact checkers, but I guess Pauline Kale could do what she wanted. Um, As I mentioned on our Velvet Goldmine episode a couple years ago, 
I wrote my senior thesis in college on Velvet Goldmine, and that was kind of how I became obsessed with Citizen Kane, because Velvet Goldmine is patterned after Citizen Kane, sort of structurally. But I had never read very much about the making of Citizen Kane or the history behind it. I was interested in Orson Welles, certainly, but I like I had no idea who Herman Mankiewicz was, because I was studying it as like a, a text that was related to this other text. And I got this biography of him in anticipation of this movie, and I read it, and it was really, really interesting... And then turned out to have almost nothing to do with the film. But that was also interesting. But to give some background, so his father um, immigrated from Germany and had, you know, no money, sort of late 19th century, and wound up working in a German language newspaper and was very kind of dissatisfied in his life and had this dream always of becoming a professor. And when Herman was young, Herman was born in 1897, and um, he grew up in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And his father uh, wound up actually working as a teacher in that town when he was a boy. And the sort of grand sort of psychological struggle of his life, as it is for so many people, was with his father. Like, he just really had difficulties with him. His father was very demanding and was never satisfied. Herman passed the entrance exam for Columbia University when he was 13 years old. (laughs) which is very young, particularly given that at that time, the Ivy Leagues were still kind of like a social club for a certain class of like elite non-Jewish white man. I was about man. to say, and- the Ivy League were also like, if you were Jewish, you had to have like a letter from like a Christian person to be like, oh, he's okay. Like it was that anti-Semitic. You had to have like a letter of recommendation. Yeah, there's no mention of that or like how all of that worked in the biography. I would be curious. I don't know specifically what the deal was with Columbia. I mean, I know it was all bad, but like I know more about Harvard's anti-Semitic admittance policy. Yeah, I mean, the different colleges would have been different. Yes, but I mean, remarkable regardless. He couldn't attend until he was 15 because they were like, you are too young. (laughs) So I know that he he did a gap year working in a coal mine. Was this before or after college? This was during this period. Okay, so So when he he was 15, he was 14, he went and worked in a coal mine. Okay, there we go. (laughs) Yes, because that was the, you know, business out in Wilkes-Barre. So he goes to college, he meets when he was he go, around 18 or 19, I think, um, this woman, Sarah Aronson, who was his wife, who appears in the film. And it sounds like it really was just like, they just immediately were madly in love with each other. She was also quite brilliant. She had not been allowed to go to college because her father needed help with the family business. And Herman always kind of resented him for that because he thought that she should have been allowed to go to college. An interesting dynamic, not explored in the movie. And her family, they're they're both Jewish. His family was not practicing. Like, he was not religious at all. Judaism was not important to his life until he married her because her family was very religious. Oh my god, that's so weird. Like, one of the many things in the movie that's inaccurate then is the fact that she angrily is, like, when they're having an argument, points out that she, like, raised their children kosher for him. And it's like, so that wasn't even him? That was her? No. I have so many complaints about the female characters in this movie. We will get into that once Morgan's finished her educational talk. (laughs) Yeah. So they go to Germany. She kind of pretty quickly realizes that this is going to be difficult because he is drinking a lot. He's gambling. He winds up like claiming to her that he has a job as a journalist for some newspaper that he does not have. Somehow they don't die in this absurd situation. Um, and she gets pregnant. They go back to New York and he winds up writing theater coverage for the Times and the New Yorker, basically like as the New Yorker is first coming into being and becomes a fixture at the Algonquin Round Table, which was this sort of set of theater and literary luminaries in New York, including Dorothy Parker and Ben Hecht and a bunch of people who are not really known today, but who were like the famous wits of New York at this time. And he wrote a couple plays, neither of which succeeded at all. I mean, they were like catastrophic disasters. But he gets offered a job in Hollywood, and they wind up going out there. And um, basically for his entire life, he would talk about, like, when he was going to go back to New York. Like, he had this idea that he was going to go back, and that was where he would be his sort of real literary self and he would produce real work out there and the Hollywood stuff he didn't take seriously. I just, I just love that that's just still happening now. <laughs> yep. Yep. And he, he sort of finally got it like decades later, but um, he really didn't like, and this was very common at the time. Like people didn't take film seriously as an art, obviously like, you know, and uh, 
he wound up doing, like, if you look at his credits, it's not a lot of stuff that people would remember now, but he did a lot of punch-ups on screenplays because he was so funny. Um, there's an amazing telegraph he sent to Ben Hecht, whom I mentioned earlier, getting him to come out to Hollywood too, that says, millions are to be grabbed out here and your only competition is idiots. Don't let this get around, which is great. But he goes through the 30s basically being hired and fired by various studios and getting into like crazy amounts of debt that somehow always managed to get paid off either by the studios as part of his contract or by his brother Joe, who's considerably younger and is more famous today. He uh, wrote and directed All About Eve because he was just gambling compulsively. I mean, he was he was an alcoholic and a gambling addict. Like he, this his whole life had never this problem never got fixed. And his wife often had to intervene on his behalf. She was very close to Louis B. Mayer because she had to go in and be like. Could you fix this again, please? She emerges from this biography as just like a fascinating, fascinating figure. I think she was one of the main sources for the book and obviously allowed the writer, Richard Merriman, to access all of Herman Mankiewicz's papers and stuff. So it was slightly sort of an approved biography, although Mankiewicz was dead at the time that it was written. But um, she was obviously just like fanatically devoted to him while also being very frustrated by various elements of his behavior. And there's like a moment where um, he writes that she would kind of echo his sentiments about things. So like he and Joe Mankiewicz, his younger brother, had a very contentious relationship. And especially once Joe was more successful than him, that was, that was tough. And she would, there's like a telegraph from her to him and where she's like shitting all over Joe Mankiewicz because like, that was how he talked. And I think there's a really interesting dynamic there of like, the wife who's also brilliant, but has to kind of live through her hus- her husband and has to believe that he is a genius because otherwise, like, what the fuck has your life even been for and why have you been putting up with this, like, very charming but also disastrous person? And none of that is in the movie. Yeah. I mean, so in this movie, it- it's obviously primarily focusing on men because it's primarily focusing on the creative process around Citizen Kane. The main female characters are, obviously, there is Manx's wife, who is played by Tuppence Middleton. And before we go any further, I'm just going to give some ages. Gary Oldman is 62 and looks 62. Tuppence Middleton is 33 and looks young and pretty, because she is a modern film actress. And they're both playing characters who are almost exactly the same age. They're both, you know, in their late 30s to early 40s during the context of the film. David Fincher has actually mentioned this in interviews. Like he was like, oh yeah, well, Mank aged really badly because he was an alcoholic. But it's like, there are casting structures in place in Hollywood that just make it so obvious that this is a sexist casting move. Like you could have cast an average looking middle-aged woman, but you cast Tuppence Middleton. But then we get onto the other two female characters. So the big lead who's getting a lot of critical attention in this movie is Amanda Seyfried who I love and she is great in this movie um I don't think she's like as amazing as a lot of other people do but like I feel very warmly towards her and I'm glad that she's getting recognition there's a very nice uh profile of her in the New York Times that kind of goes into the fact that she's often sort of somewhat intentionally playing second fiddle in her roles but um you will know her as the girl with psychic boobs in Mean Girls or the lead character in Mamma Mia She's delightful. She usually does comedy. And she is playing Marion Davies, who was the, she was a young Broadway actress and then silent film actress, kind of comedy roles, not really an A-lister. And her primary claim to fame is that she was the mistress of William Randolph Hearst, who is the business tycoon who inspired the title character of Citizen Kane. And the key conflict in this movie, Mank, is that, you know, Mank is obviously making this script which is based on a real person and that real person is hugely powerful and could destroy his career and get the film shut down which indeed he did in real life which Morgan will also be discussing in a minute but the movie also depicts his mistress under a different name and kind of part of the premise of Mank is that Mank never wanted to make Marion Davies look bad. He wanted to take this mistress role that kind of echoed her her career in real life and that she was sort of bolstered by her um, lover's wealth. But she wasn't this untalented hack and she was actually quite a nice and sympathetic person. And this character comes across very well, played by Amanda Seyfried. But once again, you have this very gorgeous, like youthful 35-year-old opposite Gary Oldman. And both characters were born in the same year. They were both born in 1897. They are the same age. She also was an alcoholic. Like if you look at pictures of her, obviously she was pretty like in her youth because she was an actress, but she wasn't like, I mean, it wasn't Amanda Seyfried, right? Like she didn't look like that. And then the third female character 
as the secretary who Mank dictates his screenplay to when he's laid up in bed with his broken leg. And she's played by Lily Collins, who literally looks like Audrey Hepburn and looks amazing and has like flawless skin and is extremely slim and looks like a model in this movie. And she's just playing like the secretary. And it's like, you need to be more judicious about your casting choices if you have three stunningly beautiful, slim, modern looking girls. I mean, they're in their 30s, but like they're very youthful in this film, which is otherwise about like average looking men in middle age and Gary Oldman, who is like fully past middle age. And I just find this very frustrating because those characters should have been the same age. And I just think that's like a deeply thoughtless and annoying creative choice. Yes. And the argument that like, well, Mank looked old, so... Like, there are pictures of him in this book that I have, and, like, it does look great, obviously. He doesn't look like a, the average 43-year-old Hollywood actor who looks like he's, you know, yeah. 35. But he doesn't look 62, let me tell you. Like, he looks like maybe late 40s, not yeah. so hot. And this only ever happens for men. Like, you never have this conversation right. about, like, oh, like, Ma- like Mank's wife wouldn't have looked like a modern movie star. And, like, his secretary, like, there's this, you have this little chat with his secretary who's, like, very British and has this wonderful, like, vintage cut glass English accent, which was very enjoyable. But he's, like, talking about, like, kind of seeing how Lily Collins is this sort of, like, goody two-shoes figure. And it's like, if someone who looked like Lily Collins walked into your house in, like, 1934, you'd be like, what the fuck is going on? Because she looks literally like she ought to be starring in one of the movies. <laughs> well, also, Sarah Mankiewicz, his wife, was actually very beautiful. Like, there are pictures of her in the book, and she's gorgeous. But she was aging at a normal rate because she was a human woman. So by the time she was 43, she was a 43-year-old woman. So they could have cast... I mean, obviously, this is a part of the problem with Hollywood, actually, is that they all get so much fucking Botox. But, like, anyone who was not 33. I mean, just older, please. A like, stage actor. Just cast a stage actor. <laughs> yes. And they have cast two actors for that couple who are not Jewish, which aggravates me since that's such a sort of crucial part of this story. Gary Oldman also has a history of making anti-Semitic remarks, which I do not like. Yeah, which I did I not mean, know about when I was writing my review because, oh boy, would I have dropped that one in. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, Ugh. I mean, this was like decades ago. Maybe he has reformed, but like, no, no, like he, really he defended relevant. Mel Gibson relatively recently. Well, then there you go. Because I googled this once you once you mentioned it, I was like, what the fuck? So I was like, oh, okay, he defended uh, Mel. G- I mean, he then apologized, but it's like defending Mel Gibson isn't one of those things you just like slips out, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's famously a nightmare person. He was blacklisted from Hollywood in the nineties. Like he, he's you know, lots of lots of shit has come out of that man's mouth. So the combination of that and the fact that he's too old and he's not good in this movie, I don't think. Like, I don't find him very convincing, although I also think the script is bad, as we've said, so I think there's it's not necessarily, like, his fault, really. The desperation to be like, well, he just has to do it. It just has to be him. It's like, like, it doesn't. You can find, there's really? like, there's a lot of men to go around. I mean, the thing is, right, like, when watching it, I was like, I did actually feel like his performance... It was like the only performance in the movie that held any kind of emotional authenticity for me, you know, because like it's it's a very shallowly written film in general. Obviously, I, I liked Amanda Seyfried, but it's quite a minor role and it's just very obvious in terms of what they're trying to do. And the thing that I enjoyed about Gary Oldman's performance, uh, which once again would very much have been overshadowed, <laughs> I was aware that he was an anti-Semite beforehand, but... um. I was going into being like, well, the the kind of the typical biopic is like, you've got this tormented genius role, which in this case, it's like him struggling with alcoholism while working on this big project and probably treating people like crap. And instead you have this like quite nuanced portrayal of this guy who has quite unusual political values and does actually feel like quite sensitive without it feeling like they're trying to make him into this perfect person who's really perceptive and like sensitive while hiding it under like a dangerous exterior. And I was like, okay, it's kind of working for me. I enjoyed his interplay with quite a lot of the other characters and felt that it was a more subtle arc than we usually see for like that rather stereotypical role. And then as soon as I found out like any factual information about him, I was like, what were they thinking? Like it bears no resemblance to the person and the real person was much more interesting and much more cinematic. So like, what were they doing? Right. So a lot of the movie revolves around the 1934 governor's race in California, in which Upton Sinclair, 
who had been a longtime communist slash socialist, depending on the time period of his association, decides to run for the Democratic uh, ticket, a la Bernie Sanders, and winds up winning the primary but in a landslide. And then the sort of Republican establishment, who had been in charge of the California legislature since like the late 19th century, are like, oh, we cannot have this. Like, this is not going to work. And they wind up historically, and then also in the movie, enlisting the people at MGM to make these sort of fake newsreels advocating for the other guy whose name I can't remember and against Sinclair. And he, he lost the election, needless to say, or else California would have been like collectivized like the Soviet Union and we would have had a very different uh, 20th century American history. But they insert Hearn Rankowitz into this drama, which is fake. That didn't happen. I found the whole story of that governor's race, which I didn't know anything about, quite interesting. You know, I googled it afterwards and reading about that was intriguing, you know, thanks to this movie for educating me on that point, I guess. But Herman Mankiewicz was a fanatical anti-communist. He's presented in this movie as a socialist. That is not correct. Um, I mean, I'm going off of this one biography, but like, it seems to be the uh, agreement of everyone that I've read. Like, this is, that's just false. Like, no, no. There is a conversation in the movie that seems to be taken pretty much verbatim from the book that I read, where he's arguing with Joe Mankiewicz about the Screenwriters Guild, which was formed in 1934, as a reaction to uh, all of the studios cutting their employees' pay by half, and the writers sort of realized that they didn't have any sort of worker power, and they unionized. It's a very complicated story. The studios tried to sort of create their own unions. I mean, it's like, if you actually read the history of this stuff, all the unionization stuff in the 30s is really, really complex because of all these different sort of groups trying to get power. Mankiewicz was basically like, well, they're going to reduce our salaries. And like, I don't want that. And Joe in the movie, I think Joe is the person who's having this conversation with him in real life too, is like, well, but it's not for you. It's for people who aren't making any money. And he's like, well, I don't know any of those people. So whatever. And... I think that there's been some talk amongst dissenters about this movie online describing him as like a totally conservative person, which obviously that little anecdote is quite conservative. But my impression from the book is more that he was just someone who didn't really have a coherent political ideology, which is most people. Like most people don't have a sort of clearly thought out set of principles. So he was fanatically anti-communist, as I said, but he also was pretty early on in the 30s, recognized that the Nazis were a huge problem and wrote a screenplay to that effect, which none of the studios would touch. He got blacklisted by Goebbels in Germany, like they wouldn't show any films with his name on the credits. And he wound up sponsoring hundreds of refugees from Germany, which they mentioned in a very hackneyed way. uh, Yeah, that was like the movie, when that scene happened in the movie, I was like, okay. Because like, they have like this nurse tell the secretary like all about how he heroically saved everyone in her village and I'm like this definitely sounds like it happened because they wouldn't just drop it in but it's fully just mentioned so it's like so they can make like this woman be more supportive of his tormented genius and allow him to drink while he's finishing the screenplay and I was like this feels tacky (laughs) yeah that was one of the worst scenes in the film I thought but he did do that however he also thought America should not intervene in the war and there's a like horrible quote that I didn't bother finding when I was going through the book again this morning about how he was like, well, I mean, the Nazis kind of have a point, like the Jews have too much power in Germany. So like, not that he's like advocating the extermination of Jewish people, but like, it was pretty appalling. And he clearly had a lot of self-loathing about his own Jewishness. Like there are many quotes in this book that are, if a non-Jewish person were saying them, you would be like, oh, Jesus Christ. And instead you're like, oh, no, like this is just very uncomfortable. Like, this was obviously a just source of serious angst for him throughout his life, that this was part of his identity. And he was adamantly opposed to the creation of Israel from the get-go because he was like, well, this is going to displace people and there's going to cause a war and it's going to be a problem, which, completely correct, but also you get the sense that it's partially due to him just, like, having this self-loathing Jewish thing going on. And on his deathbed, he told whoever was in charge that um, he didn't want people to send flowers to the funeral. He wanted them to send money to have trees planted in the Arab sections of, you know, Palestine or whatever the name was for that area at this point um, when he died. So there's just like a lot going on. 
This is a lot happening with this person. And, and also, instead they turn him into- that with the history of like the Hearst controversy, because it was like, in real life, when William Randolph Hearst was trying to get Citizen Kane shut down for, you know, depicting him in a very clearly negative light, one of his big threats towards the studio bosses was he, was he would like, he would target the Jewish studio bosses with propaganda, which he obviously had power to do. And it's part of, like, it's part of the concept of that film and also this film, Mank. And that, it doesn't really come up in the movie where Hearst is played by Charles Dance. And also they have these kind of party scenes with Hearst and with various studio bosses, particularly one of the bosses of MGM who is Jewish. And they have these scenes where it's like all of these studio executives are kind of, they're like dismissing the rise of Hitler and having these sort of posh, like privileged dinner party conversations about how like, it's, oh, it's not really a problem. Let's talk about something more fun. While, you know, Mankiewicz is the sort of voice of reason and is sort of cynically being like, actually it is a problem, but like in a quip kind of way. So you've repositioned this entire political and kind of anti-Semitic balance among these people in a completely different way that just feels very weird. Now I know the facts that were involved and it, just all of these decisions that were made feel very different to me than like, for example, Amadeus, which is famously like incredibly inaccurate biopic, but like it's not really presenting itself as like a factual text as such and even though this movie is very stylized like its entire premise is like they're correcting the historical record to let you know what really happened with Mankiewicz and it's like no this is all nonsense and a lot of the nonsense choices are quite offensive which is kind of how I feel now about the social network and net retrospect except the social network is a really entertaining movie even though it bears no resemblance to the reality of Mark Zuckerberg's life. Yes I mean this Leads us to, this episode is so fucking long, but that's that's <laughs> fine. I knew it was going to be long. I mean, this leads us to the last topic, which is the actual Citizen Kane controversy, right? And Orson Welles. I should say also that, like, uh, Herman and Sarah Mankiewicz definitely did go to San Simeon, which was uh, Hearst's complex. He's, it's, they say he they went several times in the book. Like, they definitely did go, but it wasn't like they were hanging out there all the time. And he was not friends particularly from what I gleaned from this book with Marion Davies. Like, there were a lot of people there. Like, it was a big party. Yeah. Um, Sarah would sit and do puzzles with her, um, which is a sort of poignant image. Not in the movie. Um, but the quote from the book is, Herman was sorry for Marion Davies. He felt she was not very smart and that her life with Hearst was miserable. Basically, quote, dull, dull, dull. So that's not how they chose to depict that. And like, if I were writing this, I would totally include those scenes because obviously this is the genesis of Citizen Kane. But like the idea that they have this intense bond and then she goes to the ranch to sort of talk to him about this movie after he's written the script, like it's just totally nonsense. Like that's not, it's silly. Other huge problem with this movie is that Orson Welles basically isn't in it at all. They cast Tom Burke to play him, who is 39 years old. Orson Welles was 24. Famously 24. At the time. Yes. Uh, Tom Burke does a perfectly good job. He's barely in the movie. He, like. he really didn't make an impression on me at all. I thought Tom Burke was absolutely incredible in The Souvenir, which we discussed in a, one of our end of year podcasts, I think last year. It's like a masterpiece of a movie. He's stunning in that. In this, it was just like, oh, well, Orson Welles here, I guess. And he was also wearing this outfit, which I actually don't know if it's ahistorical, but like there's this very distinctive Orson Welles outfit, which I think people know from later on in his life that has like a cape and a hat and stuff. And I was like, doesn't look like how I kind of expected him to look in the 1940s, but I'll go with it. Like, sure, whatever. Yeah. So the actual process of how the screenplay was written was that Wells and Mankiewicz and this guy John Houseman, who was sort of like the secretary. I mean, that, that seems that sounds like I'm sort of diminishing his role, but he was really deeply involved in this process. Had like weeks and weeks and weeks of story conferences before anything was set on paper about this movie and the ideas and how it was going to be structured and everything. And Mankiewicz had in fact been employed by Wells before this movie even was brought up to write uh, radio scripts for his radio his series of radio plays, which was the series that included the famous War on the Worlds one that made everyone think there was an alien invasion. Uh, Mankiewicz was not involved in that one, but that was the the series. And it was branded as like Orson Welles presents whatever, but he didn't write all of them and he had Mankiewicz write some of them. I don't really remember from the book how they got connected, but I think someone sort of suggested it and Welles kind of felt bad for him. And so he gave him this work. And this was after he had broken his leg, he was laid up. And so he just needed something to do and he didn't have any money. And... 
so they spent all this time together sort of hashing out how this was going to work. And then Mankiewicz goes off and writes the screenplay. Wells visits him multiple times in this period. Wells claimed he had also written a first draft himself um, while this was going on or beforehand. That seems like it's probably not true. There's no really corresponding evidence to that effect. But um, it was absolutely collaborative. Everyone sort of says this. And his assistant, who went on to have a very illustrious career in the theater, says, I know Orson touched every scene, and I don't mean cutting a word or two. I mean some serious rewriting. And in a few cases, he wrote whole scenes after the screenplay was finished. And um, the movie presents it as, like, her and Mankiewicz just went off and, like, out of whole cloth, constructed this masterpiece. And on top of that not being true, it strikes me as just, like, an incredibly foolish waste of a guy who, in Wells, who is, like, a fascinating person. He's young. He's an absolute prodigy. At the age of 20, he had this massive career on the stage. He has the radio stuff going on. I have two quotes from this book that about him that I think kind of sum up what's so interesting about him. There's one from this woman, Geraldine Fitzgerald. She says... We used to say that Orson had a god's eye view, that he saw you in all that he saw in you all the things that other people didn't see, all the wonderments and brains and beauty and wit you had. But what was disturbing about this beautiful light was that it was rather like a lighthouse. When the beam turned, then somebody else was illuminated and you were back in the darkness. Ooh. And like, I wanna see that guy in a movie, right? Like that's so and also, like, fascinating Tom and Burke chilling. Could play that guy. Oh yeah. Like Tom right? Burke has Absolutely. the shots. <laughs> yes. And then the other thing, which was my favorite image in this whole book, was that when Mankiewicz is writing these radio scripts, he was laid up somewhere. I don't remember exactly where. Like, it wasn't his house, but it wasn't the hospital. Um, I don't know if they had, like, a second house that he was in. But uh, Sarah, his wife, would go visit him. And there was, like, the only place she could sit was on the bed. I think there may have been a second bed. And Wells would come by and visit. And what Richard Merriman writes is, she was usually propped up on pillows reading. Wells would say, move over and lie down beside her. And he and Herman talked, goading each other with sarcasms, laughing uproariously. Wells would reach over and massage Sarah's neck. He was fun, Sarah says. Magnetic, absolutely. So, I like, mean, that's the energy. <laughs> <laughs> and you, so again, he's 24 and he's like, she's like 20 years older than him at this point, but still very beautiful. And her banquets has got his like leg in a cast on like the next bed. I mean, also, I want to see that, that is film, such right? a fun. That is such a fun like Hayes Code dynamic in an actual 1940s movie. Is sort of like when you get the sexy subtext in like a completely fully clothed scene with like one person comically with their leg in a cast and the other one's like flirting with his wife. It's amazing, <laughs> right? I was like that. I mean. How you could read that and not be like, I must write this scene. Like, I gotta do it. And instead, in the film, he's presented as this bogeyman who, like, shows up at the end and is like, you can't have credit on my movie. I mean, there was some sort of conflict about that, I think. But yeah, he, like, partly because stuff. Wells had a studio contract where he had to be credited as the writer, producer, and director of all of his movies that he was, like, con he was contracted to do. And if he wasn't credited as the writer in this, it was going to create legal problems. Like, obviously, also, he wanted to have full credit and Mankiewicz had already signed on the dotted line saying he wouldn't have credit. So there was, like, a precursor to this. But it was, like, it was more complicated than just, like, him being a megalomaniac. Yes. And, like, obviously, this guy has a huge ego. I mean, anyone with this level of, like... I mean, there was a great quote from Mankiewicz you know. himself where he, he said, like, apparently there was some point where, like, he saw Orson Welles in, like, the studio back lot somewhere and pointed him out and said, there but for the grace of God goes God. Yes. But what was sort of fascinating to me about the quotes from Welles in this book, and clearly he talked to the author, you know, extensively, he still sort of desperately wants credit for the screenplay and is sort of clinging to this idea that he had this other first draft, which again seems like it doesn't exist. But he's very generous to Mankiewicz about what he did with the script. Like, it's not like he's claiming that he didn't write anything at all. 
He says, I didn't come in like some more talented writer and save Mankiewicz from disaster. Without Mank, it would have been a totally different picture. It suits my self-esteem to think it might have been almost as good, but I could never have arrived at Kane as it was without Herman. There's a quality in the film, much more than a vague perfume, that was Mank, and that I treasured. It gave a kind of character to the movie, which I could never have thought of. It was a kind of controlled, cheerful virulence. We're finally telling the truth about a great wasp institution. I personally liked Kane, but I went with that. And that probably gave the picture a certain tension, the fact that one of the authors hated Kane and one loved him. But then there's a letter from 1943 from Mankiewicz where he's talking about this process. And he tells a story where he says that he said to Orson Welles, um, despite this and that, Mr. Hearst was in many ways a great man. He was and is, said Orson, a horse's ass, no more and no less, who had been wrong without exception on everything he's ever touched. So there's what's kind of poignant about this is that like, we, we know basically what happened, right? It's what we just described, this sort of collaborative process. But they, they both kind of remember it differently, and it's just never going to be totally reconciled. And that's really interesting. But what we do know is that the movie that was just made is not fucking what happened. Yeah, I mean, it's not all. accurate, but it's also like there's no ambiguity toward it. And the way they do the timelines is just confusing. Because like partway through the movie, they literally have a conversation where they're talking about how, oh, the audiences might potentially be confused by Citizen Kane because Citizen Kane isn't told in like a traditional like narrative structure and I was well literally while watching the movie I was like so I guess they're gonna echo that somehow in the structure of this film because we mean jumping between the 1930s and 1940 and then by the end I'd forgotten that because it clearly hadn't happened <laughs> well I kept thinking that too I rewatched Citizen Kane the night before I watched Mank because I I've seen that movie so many times I love it but I hadn't seen it in quite a while and um I mean if you're still listening to this and haven't seen Citizen Kane. Uh, we love you. Thank you. But please go watch Citizen Kane because it's so good. And clearly there was, like, people did find it a little bit tricky at the time. Although part of the reason it didn't make very much money was that studios would not exhibit it in their theaters because they were freaked out about the Hearst stuff. But it's just completely entertaining. Like, it's so much fun while also being really innovative and structurally sort of complicated in a way that's not hard to understand now at all. And I feel like if I had been given this task to write this, even if it would be a little bit hackneyed, the obvious thing to do is to just like straightforwardly replicate the structure of Citizen Kane, like Velvet Goldmine does, right? Like, I mean, probably a smarter person would come up with a slightly more sort of like artistic way of doing it. But like, just have people telling stories about Herman Mankiewicz that kind of contradict each other. Like, seems obvious. I don't know. Velvet Goldmine is a better movie about Citizen Kane. And oh, yeah. as I really non-jokingly remarked to you the other day, I definitely learned more about 1930s American politics from reading Captain America fanfic than from watching the <laughs> alleged election sections of this movie. So, you know... <laughs> Yes. I mean, Citizen Kane will teach you a lot more about Yeah, obviously Citizen Kane is like an excellent too. movie, which is informative and made at the correct time. But like, just, ah, we have, yeah, it, this movie was bad. Um, thanks for listening if you haven't watched it. And also please share this podcast if you thought it was good. Share our yes. knowledge, especially Morgan's. <laughs> we worked so hard. And all the quotes I read out from that book, uh, good luck to you finding them because this book is not accessible. So, I mean, maybe it's in a few libraries, but um, this is pretty much the place where you can access this information. So uh, please share it around. Truly, thank you so much for listening. We, we prepared a lot for this episode and it was really fun to record. So uh, we hope you got something out of it. So next week, we will be discussing Kenneth Lonergan's Margaret or... Margaret, if you're just typing it in, it's pronounced Margaret in the film, which was a Patreon request that we are very excited to fulfill. Uh, I have seen this movie. I have not seen it since it came out. It's a really interesting case of a film that got sort of bogged down in like endless studio drama um, and was released many years after it was made. And there will be a lot of interesting stuff to talk about in terms of the sort of studio business. And it's a great movie also. I love Interesting cast. Anna, Anna Paquin, obviously, in the lead role, but also Jean Reno, Alison Janney, Matthew, Bo- Matthew Broderick, Mark Ruffalo, Matt Damon, uh, Kieran Culkin. I've not seen this movie and I don't know what it's about apart from a teenager, but that is a very impressive cast. And uh, Jay Smith Cameron of Succession fame, who is married to Kenneth Lonergan, plays Anna Paquin's mom. <gasps> so uh, my main memory of this film, there's a great opera scene, which you will enjoy, but also... When it came out, it was so delayed 
that all of the fashion was completely outdated, but it wasn't like a period piece yet. And so it was just like incredibly disorienting. Oh my God, that delayed. Wow. Okay. So 2005 and then it came out in 2000. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. So I was like, they're wearing clothes from like when I was a freshman in high school. <laughs> like what the fuck? Yeah, it was wild. Uh, I believe there's a director's cut available now, which will be interesting to watch. Um, but it was a, it, it was a wild situation. They just would not let him do what he wanted with the cut. And it was really long and this whole, you know, business. We will talk more about that next week. And then uh, we'll get into some sort of Christmas business and the year end review stuff at the end of the year. So that is what you have to look forward to. Yeah, love a year end review podcast. Yes, uh, we're both, you know, catching up. Which movies were good? Movies. Do we remember? Fortunately, we both keep <laughs> diaries. <laughs> uh, yes, obsessively keeping track of every movie that we've watched. Yeah, we will also be recording a listener mail episode for our Patreon in the coming week. So if you have questions you would like to ask us, you can find a post soliciting questions on our Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Please ask us questions. We have already received many excellent questions, but we would love to hear more from you. Um, You can also find our commentary tracks for the Lord of the Rings trilogy there if you would like to watch those over the holidays. And Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter and you can find my YouTube channel about costume design at Behind the Scenes. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.